Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Jill Christman. She is the author of If This Were Fiction, a love story and essays, and two memoirs, Dark Room, a Family Exposure, and Borrowed Babies, Apprenticing for Motherhood, a 2020 NEA Literature Fellow and winner of the AWP Creative Nonfiction Prize, she is a professor in the creative writing program at Ball State University, senior editor of River Teeth, a journal of nonfiction narrative, and executive producer of the podcast Indelible, Campus Sexual Violence. Welcome, Jill. Thank you so much, Roni. It's just such a joy to be here. I listen to the podcast. I'm, I feel so lucky to be on it with you. Oh, gosh. I'm so happy you're on the program and was thrilled to meet you at AWP uh, this past year in Seattle. And I think I mentioned to you then that the, one of the very first memoirs I read that Deborah Gwartney, my advisor at my MFA program, suggested I read in the program was Dark Room, which was your first memoir. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that. But so then to make this connection and to be able to meet you in person and then have you as a guest is just, wow, so I'm over the moon. So thank you so much. And I love that our first connection was Deborah Gortney. I am a huge fan of hers. And Live Through This was actually a book that we loved here at Ball State. And we brought her here for our imprint festival of first books years ago. And she and I have worked together throughout the years. I think she is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, she's she's something else. I mean, I just can't believe my luck in being able to study with her. Uh, so can you start, let's start by you ha- sharing just a bit about your newest, If This Were Fiction. Thank you so much for the question. Oh, it's, it's I'm almost embarrassed to admit how this book got started, because this is a collection of essays. And by the time I started writing essays, I had written one memoir and another dark room, a family exposure, which you mentioned in the introduction, and then uh, another short one, Borrowed Babies, which was pulled from a huge memoir manuscript that I am still working on. Publishers mm-hmm. out there, it's going to be my best one yet. Just contact <laughs> me. Um, so I, it was, I, I write kind of big books. And my husband, Mark Neely, who will come into this conversation later when we talk about River Teeth, is a poet um, and also an editor of River Teeth. And as I was trying to earn tenure, he looked at me one night over dinner and said, you are going to lose your job. (laughs) And it was because uh, I was writing this big book and on the tenure track, you need to produce kind of regularly and they don't really care if you're writing a big book. So the kind of embarrassing thing that I will admit here at the beginning is that I started writing essays to save my job. Mm-hmm. And I confess that because I think other people maybe have done that. This was way back when. This was uh, I started writing essays around the birth of my daughter, which was 2003. So that's how I keep track. And then, of course, I say, 
hoping that people will notice the of course if they read my essays, I fell in love with the form full stop. It turns out that my brain works in essays, that to follow a question to a deeper question until I have an unanswerable question is just the kind of thing I like to do with my writing. And so I came to it quite pragmatically and then I have stayed because I am madly in love and have stayed in love. So and you saved your job? And I saved my job. <laughs> well, I could just imagine these conversations between you and your writer husband. I mean, I would imagine this is my first take on being married to a writer at the same caliber of the same caliber is that in a different genre, you know, or the same genre. Is I totally like, recommend the cross genre um, yeah. love affair. <laughs> I've been with fiction writers. It didn't really work out in the same way. I think a poet nonfiction is actually <laughs> ideal. Yeah. So I could imagine it being like really excellent and wonderful in so many ways and also potentially infuriating in some ways. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, there's no place to hide. I think I don't know what it's like to be married to a non-writer, but I do know the feeling of trying to, you know, BS my way out of revising something or making something better or even spending time with my butt in the chair writing. And he's on to me, right? So... <laughs> There's really there's really no kind of romanticizing or making it different than it really is because he lives the same life that I do. That's amazing. If you sit down on the sofa for like for like a show or just to rest and you both know what work you had in front of you that day and you might feel really accountable to that other person because they know what it's about. Yeah, the accountability level is incredibly high in our household. Though so okay, so now I've already I've already um taken us off on a tangent. This is what I this is why I love the essay. This is it right here. We were already experiencing it. But to Mark is connected to this also. So I wrote essays and published them in magazines and kind of did it not as cover for the memoirs, but as a way to steadily be publishing but still allow myself the space to spend the time with the longer books that I wanted to spend. And then at a certain point about 15 years into this endeavor, I realized that I had probably about three times the amount of essays that appear in the book, right? Mm -hmm. I had produced a lot of essays and, and Mark, again, Mark, he was like, why don't you put together a collection? And this sounds like I'm not telling the truth, but truly I, I hadn't really thought about it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. because I really wanted it to feel, I didn't want it to feel like essays that were collated between two mm -hmm. covers. I wanted it very much to be a book. And so when I set to deciding which essays I would use and what order they would go in, I was thinking in using the principle of threes as we do in art and design. I come from a family of visual artists. Mm -hmm. And that's how I came up with the three sections. And then I was thinking about, this is gonna make everybody love Mark extra and really we all should. But this, this story is in the book and the essay Life's Not a Paragraph. But early in our courtship, he said in my ear, first he said, can I say a poem? And I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> so, you know. And then he said the E.E. E. Cummings poem, Since Feeling is First. And I, just have always loved that poem since then. It, it's at the center of our relationship. And 
I realized how perfectly it would work as a structure for this book, which is a love story to my fiance, Colin, who was killed in a car accident when we were both so young. And then to Mark, who came along later, our amazing children, and, and really to myself. Um, and so I knew that I wanted it to be a love story. And that, that Cummings poem made so much sense as a scaffolding for that story. And my amazing luck, Ronit, was that it became public domain in the year the book was published. I could use the whole thing. Mark, also, I say this to people when they're like, what should we, how do I build a writing community, etc." And I have said this before, so apologies if there's anyone who's heard me say this at a conference, but I, I believe deeply that one of the most important reasons to go to an MFA program or another kind of writing program is to find the readers who you will work with for the rest of your life, right? The people whose work you get and who get you. Um, and in the case of Mark, I simply bound him to me forever. We met in our MFA program and he is an incredible editor. So, and he doesn't hold back. So when I was putting this book together, he'd look at what I'd done and say, no, not this one, not this one. No, get rid of it. There's a hole here, fill it. Yes. So he was both that, that the man who said the poem in my ear and now he's the ruthless editor with whom I get to live. So it's a pretty good combination. <laughs> your your love story in that essay is, I just loved reading that because I'm reading, so I thoroughly enjoyed, really loved this book. And I'll read through the books because I, I need to know the material for the interviews. And then when I got to that essay, I thought, oh, I get to luxuriate in a, a story of how they met and what their love is like. And I thought, what a treat this is. Um, and, and it is so, so artfully and elegantly rendered. And I just was like right there rooting for you because I think we grew up in a similar time. And I think, you know, that whole college thing, growing coming of age at that time. And gosh, I just was so happy I got to go on that sort of memory that memory trip with you. It was just really, it was generous of you. And I, I felt so included as a reader. Thank you. So thank you so much. That means the world to me. And speaking of generosity, your generosity, imagine what it is to spend that kind of time with marks that someone else has made on a page. Like I, when I hear someone like you talking about having read something of mine and having it mean something to them, it never fails to strike me as a kind of magic. So thank you. Mm, yeah. And, you know, on that note, I was thinking if you would be willing to read that excerpt we talked about so we can dive in, pardon the pun, as as you're going to name this this excerpt, but um, dive into the actual book and, and what you're covering in it. Sure. I would love to. Mm -hmm. And as I was saying before we started the recording, I think this excerpt that you requested from the river cave, which is, oh, what is it? It's about a quarter of the way into the book, really puts its finger on a lot of the main concerns of the essays as a whole. And so this is on a, as to, just to set it up just a tiny bit, this is, it kind of sets it up inside it. I think, I think we'll get it and then we can talk about it afterwards. Mm -hmm. Thank you. After Colin's death, it took me a while to rediscover fear. I remember a feeling of great and mournful recklessness. I tempted fate. And so one afternoon, about four months after the accident, I found myself at the mouth of a cave with two companions, 
Colin's brother, and a woman whose brother had also died violently in the last year. We were a ragged and wounded team, and we were traveling through Central America together. The cave was in central Guatemala, and our guide was a 10-year-old boy who would not go into the cave. No. Here's a thing about me 15 years later. I would never go into this cave now. But back then, I don't remember that we hesitated, even when our guide stopped at the mouth, sat on a rock, gestured into the wet blackness, and shook his head, no, no, not me, muy peligroso. Starting out, we had three flashlights between us, but happily, we heeded the advice of the German back at the finca and also brought candles. We lit them, sticking the candles to the cliff walls here and there with melted wax as we headed in. This place was scary. Bats everywhere, hanging shadows, diving specters. Guatemala is one of those countries vampire bats still call home. I don't remember caring. At one point, the channel got so narrow that the cave ceiling came down to meet the water. Did I mention that most of our mile-long journey was done waist-deep in a moving river? A cave river? We had to swim under the water, but I don't remember feeling afraid. Now, thinking about how I plunged my head, my whole self, into the flooded, mysterious darkness, cognizant of the possibility that I would find rock and not air on the other side, well, I am sickened. Before going under, I do think we hesitated. Clearly this was folly. But the German, was it the German again, had told us about this low point in the cave. He'd told us it would open up again on the other side. We had known the German for one day. We dove under. Moving into this cave in memory is like moving into memory itself. And at the point where the last of our three flashlights sputtered and expired, I want to say we were at a place where we would have been forced to turn back anyway. I want to say that we were standing at the top of an underground waterfall, but I can't conjure a clear vision. And wouldn't such a natural wonder burn its image on my brain? Or perhaps my brain was too clouded by grief. I do remember the journey back because I felt a shiver of fear and I welcomed the unfamiliar prickle. I didn't want to die in this watery cave and I was glad. We were in near total blackness and returning to the mouth of the cave meant feeling our way along the sharp edges of the walls and hoping we hadn't missed any branching channels, hoping the flickering light from our next melting candle would scatter off the swooping walls, a sparkle, a glint, but enough to lead us back to the cautious boy holding our sandwiches. The hike back to the finca took us through a banana grove with drooping leaves large enough to make a hammock for a baby. I remember feeling good to be out in the sunshine again after so much darkness and only a sputtering of light. That night I got sick, the most wrenching sickness of the whole journey. That was strange because we were at a ranch run by North Americans and there had been much talk about the safe and delicious food. The place was poison. I spent the night on my knees in the grass outside our bunkhouse, feeling far, far away from home and yes, wanting my mother. I wanted my mother to hold my hair and rub my back. I wanted ginger ale and saltines. I wanted to go home. A large iguana stood on top of a ragged post, letting his tail drape dramatically down toward the two green grass. He rotated his eyes with a tick-tick of full vision, googly eyes. 
This guy could look anywhere he wanted, but he trained both eyeballs on me. I was on my back in the dankly warm grass, sharing my resting place with God knows what in this false fairy tale of tropical foliage jacked up by modern fertilizers. That morning, before the journey to the cave, I'd been chased by two giant parrots, ripping rainbows of birds, screaming down from the treetops and skimming my ponytail with their wingtips. I was jogging, I told the iguana, delirious with fever and puking. I bet you know them. Around here, probably nobody runs unless they're running from something, huh? I was in Dr. Doolittle land, stuck in the glossy illustrations at the center of the book, talking in full dawning color to an enormous green lizard on a brown post in a green, green world. He seemed to understand. His world was changing, too. I want to go home, I told him. Thank you. Uh, yeah, this is, um, yeah, I was right there with you in that river cave and I really didn't know what was going to happen. And I just, I don't know what to say. I'm pretty much fangirling here and I have a lot to say about this idea of trauma writing or what I want you to, to, to reflect on. So, you know, in the beginning of the book, you share the idea of writing through trauma and your early experiences in grad school, how some of your peers, um, you, quote, accused you of perpetuating the idea of therapy writing, which made you furious that that you, quote, denied writing about your childhood helped you. And then you also, which I loved, you also called into question their purportedly made up stories, you know, the fiction writers that, oh, yeah, sure, sure, you made this up. And so I'm asking a big question here, which is, can you talk a little bit about the idea of writing through trauma, the idea of what we create with fiction versus nonfiction, and, you know, what you've landed, where you've landed now? Yeah. So, you know, I wrote Dark Room. That's a, that's a great question, and that's a long question. It could take yeah, up the rest yeah. of our time and yeah, maybe yeah. some other time, too. So <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to zoom in here. But yeah. I wrote Dark Room, to my knowledge, uh, Dark Room and nobody's ever told me differently, is the first memoir that was ever presented uh, for a degree at the University of Alabama in the Tuscaloosa program, because there was no nonfiction program at that point. So I had gone in as a fiction writer, and it was really clear to me when when folks, if, if, if folks choose to, to read Dark Room, there's a lot of tough stuff in there. Um, most centrally, well, there's a lot of different tough stuff in there, mm -hmm. but there's childhood sexual abuse. There's also the death of Colin that listeners just heard about. And my uncle Mark, who died in prison um, when he was serving a 10 year mandatory minimum for something that seems, it seems bizarre now, this story, right? Mm -hmm. He was serving a mandatory minimum for growing marijuana outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it, it took on a lot of tough stuff from the first 20 years of my life. And I didn't know how to write fiction without trying to put together the pieces of who I was on the page before I started doing the other thing, right? I just, I kept trying. Like I knew that I was supposed to, or I felt like I was supposed to. It's, it, it's really hard to communicate. And I, and I know that you've talked to some other guests about this. It's really hard to communicate. The world now 
in terms of nonfiction and memoir writing is completely different from what mm -hmm. it was then. We, it just, it wasn't something that was happening in writing programs. And so I was kind of on my own. So I, I was writing short stories for workshop and then writing Darkroom under the cover of night. And I definitely <laughs> felt like I was misbehaving and not only misbehaving that it was like somehow like some sort of deep moral failing on my part mm -hmm. that I needed to dig into this, you know, it was, it, it just was completely accepted that those who wrote about their own lives were navel gazing. And it was about, which, which we now know that we don't even bother to talk about that anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we know that's silly, but at the time it didn't feel that way to me. And so I was defensive. I was mad and I was so lucky to have such amazing teachers who helped me do this thing that hadn't, hadn't been done there before in crazy ways. I was using photographs. I was, I was breaking the rules that I wouldn't, the for, the book couldn't be formatted in a way that the library would even accept it, you know? Mm -hmm. So like everything, I just couldn't, because I had to do it. I had, I did, had no idea what I was doing because I, I really hadn't read enough at that point. I didn't know who my models were and I was, I was flailing in a way that I think was the best possible thing for me, right? I just made mistake after mistake. And later you're gonna ask a question I think about about um, advice that I would give to memoirists. <laughs> and some of it comes from that experience for me, which was that in the writing of Darkroom, I felt only that I was writing to myself and that the relationship was between me and the words I kept moving around on the page to try to make some sense of who I was and how I would move forward from that point. So it, it felt, I'm getting to your trauma writing question. Sorry, I've gone off. You see why I no, haven't no, read no. essays? <laughs> <laughs> and so at the time, and I, I, would, I would deny that it did me any good at all, right? Mm -hmm. But of course it did because really careful, observant, writing of your own life so that you can write outward from that place is not so different from excellent talk therapy, frankly. Um, and I denied this until I tell this story in an essay that's in the book until I was visiting a high school who'd read Darkroom and a girl in the class whose pain I could see in her eyes so clearly asked me if darkroom had writing darkroom had helped me and it was not possible nor would it have been ethical of me to lie to her and mm -hmm. i i looked at her and i was like yeah i have this quote right here because uh, bonus i actually pulled it and i'm going to read it because it's from going to plum island and if i'm correct and this is what you wrote in order to write that story the way i needed to write that story i needed to look into all the dark corners of my brain in order to find something true that would matter, I needed to think hard about things I'd avoided thinking about all my life. And now the dark corners are lit up. And that's the truth. So that, that right there is the truest thing I think I've ever said about writing trauma. And, and I believe that to be true is that this is how we, this is why it matters, right? Um, I, I believe that um, shame flourishes in darkness, 
I believe that the telling of our deepest stories can save our lives. And if we don't tell them, no one tells them for us, right? You are the only one who can tell your story. So I have, I know I have lived through the telling of mine. Um, and I am so grateful to all of the, the books and the teachers who taught me how to do that. And I take very seriously my responsibility to do that for others. Thank you, Karov, for being a Let's Talk Memoir partner. Karov is a subscription service that ships high quality, personalized vitamin supplements and powders to your door every month. And one of the really fun parts is you get to go to their website, which is beautiful, by the way, and personalize what you need based on your concerns. There's a quiz that helps guide your supplement selections and you can retake it as your needs change. I shift my packets around a bit, but I always include ashwagandha, the chill pill, B-complex for stress, always need that, always have needed that, and the probiotic, which is good for digestion and immunity. Right now, you can get 50% off your first Care Of order by going to TakeCareOf.com. That's TakeCareOf.com and entering the code MEMOIR50. So if you want to try Care Of and you want 50% off of your first order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code MEMOIR50. Thank you, Care Of, for being a Let's Talk Memoir partner. You open the essay Slaughterhouse Island with this quote, the thing about telling this story 30 years later is that even though I know where the culpability rests, firmly I have trouble soaking off the most dogged shame. I am scraping away the last of the sticky residue with my thumbnail. And I'm wondering in working deeply with memoir material and teaching it, what you've come to understand about shame and excavating and sharing our personal painful story. So while shame can thrive in darkness and we're writing into our experience so we can bring it out to the light, as you mentioned in the earlier quote as well, what else do you know about working with material like this after all these years doing it yourself and watching students do it? Yeah, thank you for that question. I actually you're going to laugh at me and, <laughs> and I deserve that. My, my students laugh. I love a good handout. I actually have a handout called Practical Tips for Writing Difficult Material. <laughs> there are 11 points, so I, I printed it out so I would have it here because I have thought about this quite a bit, and I, I'm not going to read all of them to you. Um, but I, I want to say that the first one might be worth talking about, and that is recognize that we don't always know what makes up our hard material that's an aspect of what makes it hard, right? Mm -hmm. And I, so then the next question, the next obvious question to add to that is that, well, then how do we know? Well, one way we know is that it's the thing that we're avoiding. It's that thing that when you're starting to get closer to it in your writing, suddenly you have to check your email or um, your phone messages or pop up and make another cup of tea. And I, and I can tell you truthfully that if you try to ignore the hard stuff, it will wait for you, right? I, I, mm -hmm. I think that every memoirist you talk to will probably know this experience that difficult material has a tendency to seep. And in order to write difficult material, I think we have to 
look really hard, go really deep and allow ourselves to move beyond what we thought that we knew. Um, and again, returning to the other thing, and I'm not afraid, I am, I am, a, I am fully in my crone years now. So I own all of this. I believe that healing is a process of discovery. And I think that, that writing, writing trauma is also a process of discovery. And you will discover things as you, I mean, I can point to moments in, um, in if this were fiction, uh, where I surprised myself years and years into, into thinking about some of these things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the moment on the, when I'm writing the story of Colin's accident in the avocado, and I realized that now in the day of Google Maps, I could go look at the intersection where he was killed and see the last person, last place he was alive, right from above on Google maps. And I, I remember just that feeling here. I am now many years after his death, a mom of a couple of kids, you know, thinking about when they're next meal feeding them, realizing for the first time that they were those, those young men were on their way to get a pizza after work and that they died hungry. Right. And just that, oh, you know, <laughs> and you don't plan for those moments. You write your way into those moments. Um, and, and so I guess partially my advice would be to be open to that, um, open to those, open to those surprises. And to the extent that you need to pretend that you're writing only for yourself and that nobody else ever has to see it. I think that that can be really helpful too. And in fact, they don't. I once heard Cheryl Strayed say, um, there is not a direct line from your laptop to the New Yorker, right? You're, you're gonna have time to do whatever it is you need to do in between that, those moments. So please don't let those people into the room with you when you're writing. Mm -hmm. I could go on for a long time, but this is kind mm -hmm. of my topic. But I, I guess fundamentally, I would say to recognize that the that your story is your story and only you can tell it and also yeah that's the main thing right so that's that's kind of the juxtaposition in a way you're not the only one going through something really difficult or painful or maybe even that's lost a fiance but you're the only one who can tell the story the way that you understand it or that you're trying to understand it correct that's just that is beautifully said um i have a james baldwin quote uh on my desk that i i think of a lot but it, it's so true he wrote, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. Let's talk a little bit in our, I know our time is running low, um, and I could talk with you forever, but what about River Teeth? You've been there for a while. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about River Teeth and your role there. Sure. Uh, thank you for that question. We here, I'm at Ball State University. Uh, we have a wonderful creative writing program here. I have in the past taught at Ashland University in the low residency MFA program. And that is where I met Joe Mackle and Dan Lehman, who are the founding editors and still currently the editors in chief of River Teeth. And four years ago, uh, right as we were about to have to launch ourselves into the pandemic, uh, Joe and Dan approached me and Mark and asked us if we would adopt River Teeth. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> Did you really? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of work. <laughs> um, yeah, because 
Anyway, it's this is a really long story too. So the 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 gist of the story is that Joe Mackle can talk folks into just about anything. And indeed, he talked us into becoming the new home for River Teeth. And so what do I do for River Teeth? The question might be, what do I not do for River Teeth? <laughs> I am, along with Mark Neely, because we needed one more thing besides our children to raise together. Um, I'm a senior editor at River Teeth. And we've built a internship program around the magazine so that we can give students here at Ball State literary editing experience. And that has been truly, that has been truly a joy. And we have also really nurtured River Teeth's little sister magazine, Beautiful Things, which is a weekly online magazine of micro essays, 250 words or fewer. River Teeth is a print magazine that comes out twice a year, um, and we take any length um, essay, actually, very short or very long. We're generous that way. And so I am a senior editor at both those magazines. And if I could just do a little plug, I mean, subscribe to River Teeth. Absolutely. It's a beautiful magazine and I think that you will love it. But if you want something free, you should go to the River Teeth site, riverteethjournal.com and sign up to receive beautiful things in your inbox every Monday morning for free occurred to me that my team would be, Jill, we've tried to teach you about marketing and communication and you failed to say that. Well, this perfectly dovetails into what I want to say. And also you're right, because I think we, we don't want to be that way. We don't want to be schmaltzy or, you know, get up on our soapbox about these things. But, you know, it's important. Literary magazines really do need readership and support and they need people to share them. So and and this is also part of, I think, the, the idea of the writing life versus the publishing or marketing life. And so let's let me pivot and ask as an editor what you and your team are looking for in submissions. And how do you recommend writers who are in the earlier stages of submitting their work, not necessarily newer writers, but writers who are kind of, you know, maybe submission shy or not used to doing it? How should they approach this aspect of their writing life? Okay. Again, that's many questions. The thing about you and me is that we both ask the many layered questions and that could, that's where we get ourselves in trouble. But okay. <laughs> so what are we looking for in an essay? We were just having an editorial meeting this morning with a new batch of interns teaching them about reading beautiful things. And for beautiful things, I tell them that the essays we publish, and now we publish approximately 3% of the submissions that we receive for beautiful things, about 1% of the submissions we read for, we receive for River Teeth. So, I need to start by saying that we have to turn down so many wonderful essays. So to answer part of the end of your question, one way I would ask folks who are new to submitting to think about it is as a separate piece from the writing, right? Writing and publishing are not the same thing. Rejection and feedback are certainly not the same thing. Right. So to the extent that those two things can be separated, I know that it's difficult. It actually gets easier with age. I can report from the crone years, but sometimes it's just, it's just not a, a, the right fit. Right. And there are so many good essays. Folks are just, it's just a wonderful time for the essay. Okay. So, so I would say that don't give mm -hmm. up. 
Um, but also don't be too hasty, right? Be patient. You want to be a crafty tortoise, I think, when it comes to writing and submission. I would say, and sometimes people get mad at me when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I would say that when you think you've finished an essay, you should read it out loud for yourself and then put it away and then pull it out a couple weeks or a couple months later. I know this is old advice, but it's still true. In our submittable account, the one thing I see most commonly is, is essays that don't feel to me as if they've been quite finished, right? Mm -hmm. I can often see where they're going and they have great possibility and sometimes that's wowing enough in some particular way that we work we work with that in kind of a developmental editing phase but in many cases my sense is that the work of connecting all the threads and then really critically um, cutting away those threads that are not absolutely necessary hasn't been finished yet and I recognize this because I've been writing essays now for 20 years <laughs> and mm -hmm. I know, I know that temptation to be like, I cannot look at this essay again. I am done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I also know I am lying to myself, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that I am not actually done. I want to be done. Wanting to be done and actually being done are not the same thing. Right. So I, I think that that's another thing is to be to be really to be patient and not and know that there will be time. Right. So maybe submissions are closing on the day after you finish an essay, but maybe you wait till the next time around. Right. And that's going to give you a good couple months to to do what you might need to do. Of course, the language needs to be there. This would differ among the editors, but at River Teeth, the four top editors all agree when we publish an essay and we disagree a lot. Right? So for me, I will speak only for myself, but for me, the language really needs to be there. And also the, the sense of the center having been found the core, what's at stake and that I'm being told the truth, right? That the truest truth that that, that that writer is able to find in terms of advice, don't be afraid to make a mess. Uh, we just published an essay. It's not out yet. And I will not reveal the author's name at this point. But I will tell you that not only is it her first published essay, but it is her first essay she's ever written. And when she and I met on Zoom for an editorial meeting, I was teasing her because when she submitted the essay, she did not even change the title from CNF experiment on the file. <laughs> so first I say, don't rush it. And then <laughs> every once in a while, I'd never seen anything like this essay. We had to like talk to our copy editor and say, yeah, I know it's a lot of different fonts <laughs> or <laughs> yeah, I know this isn't what we use. Right. So on the one hand, I want people to, I, I really feel it's so important to take your time and make sure you're finished. And on the other hand, sometimes funny things happen. So that's why I tell that story. Thanks for that. Uh, I love that too. That's that other juxtaposition, right? Like we have to be open and free enough and relaxed enough to create and follow our intuition and our gut. But then we have that other part of us that has to really work hard and dig in. I know one thing that, another thing that 
Joe and Dan talk about a lot and that they have taught me to see in the reading of an essay is when an author flinches, right? When you can see them coming up to the thing they're really trying to say or think about or explore or interrogate and they get there and they're like, mm, no, not today. Like you can, like I can point to those moments, right? And I, I want to see them kind of move into that. Of course, always exceptions, but that, that's maybe something to think about. Because mm. you know, as a writer, you know where those moments are. Writing the truest story you can tell is, well, there's a lot of things that get in the way of that, aren't there? There's a lot of things to be afraid of. There's a lot of people to be afraid of. There's a lot of, there's, there's um, judgment to be, like, there are so many things that get in the way of that. But we ourselves are our best judge of when we are, in fact, doing the work that we've come to the page to do, I think. Mm-hmm. I love the idea, the the image of the four editors discussing an essay and going, some of them going to bat for it, others saying why they don't feel, you know, I just love the idea that there are these conversations happening. That's very gratifying to know, even if it doesn't always mean an acceptance is, is imminent. But that idea that there's some people paying that close attention to work is really heartening. I'm, uh, thank you. And we, we, we are all writers and we love writers at River Teeth. And that is the truth. And we, we, we do everything we can to make it a good experience for, for every writer. Do you have some memoirs you would like to recommend or memoirs that you think students that you've taught really appreciate you suggesting to them that you'd like to share here? Oh, yes. Thank you for that question. Um, because I should have just been saying this whole time, read, 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 read. Before I wrote Dark Room, the most important book to me, and it remains an important book, because it taught me that, yes, you can say that, is Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. I think everybody should read that book. Mm-hmm. Also, some strange one is that it makes it sound like I'm trying to be fancy, but it, in fact, was what I was reading in graduate school because I had no creative nonfiction classes. In fact, here's a secret. I have never had a creative nonfiction class. (laughs) I have taught hundreds, (laughs) but I was reading, um, I read Roland Bart by Roland Bart and just the idea. So I came to memoir through such play and this mix of theory with the personal, right? And the way he was interrogating images, right? So my first book was called Dark Room. That is no accident. Natalie Sarout's uh, Childhood. Uh, have you, that is, Mm-mm. nobody reads this book anymore. The way she worked with memory and just the crystalline focus of her attention. Again, the play and the respect that she had for a childhood perspective was so vital to me when I was sort of developing um, how I work on uh, work in memoir. A funny one is Rick Bragg's All Over But the Shoutin'. See, this is 1998. You have to, there were not this, there were not as many memoirs back then, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I remember an interview, this made a big impression. Always get the names when you do an interview, always get the names of the dogs, the beer, and the chickens, right? So I have <laughs> taken that advice to heart. I did not read Mary Carr's The Liars Club until after I finished Dark Room on purpose. I can't defend that choice. I wouldn't defend it again. But that's a book that was important to me. And actually, though, I don't love it with the same passion that I love her next memoir which was cherry i think that is a fantastic book and everyone should read it mm-hmm. i have to pitch some of my students here i'm kind of a, a memoir grandmother now 
And so maybe I can send you a link for this, but I wrote about these three authors when, before they had books, when they had essays on, on Ander Monson's wonderful site, Essay Daily. But now they all have books. So Ashley C. Ford's Somebody's Daughter, mm-hmm. Alicia Sawchin's, this is a collection of essays, A Fish Growing Lungs. It's amazing. And Brittany Means, uh, Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways. Brittany was a student of ours here at Ball State. Brittany Means is a miracle of a writer and a human being, and I am just a huge fan. So I'm so glad that you were interviewing that. That is amazing. That is amazing. But that reminds me, speaking of people you interview, Abigail Thomas's Safekeeping, like everybody needs to read that book. That was a huge influence on me. Um, sorry, this list is going on too long, but recent books that have meant a lot to me, uh, Carmen Maria Mercado's in the dream house. What a book mm-hmm. Jasmine Ward's men we reaped mm-hmm. Elizabeth McCracken's fictional autobiography, the hero of this book. That one will get you thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm listing one more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because I think everyone, I've been waiting for this book for so long. Beth wins brand new owner of a lonely heart. Mm-hmm. Her first memoir, Stealing Buddha's Dinner, is such an amazing book, and Owner of a Lonely Heart is is incredible. So that's my that's my short list. Yeehaw! That was great. I'm excited. I think you win. You win for the most books recommended. You had the the most prepared, ready to go. So I'm going to include them all in the show notes. If you need help, I I did write them down because I was thinking, well, I was sort of thinking in phases, you know, ones I read before I wrote Dark Room, ones I read after the ones. And then I realized that I, you know, had these, these, these books that are now my students are writing them. It's wonderful. Oh gosh, yeah, really. I, there's so it's such a rich career, such a rich discipline, uh, in all the ways because of what you get to create yourself and what you get to see come into being. Uh, I know you've been giving advice this entire time. I've written some of it down, but just to make sure, is there any last word of advice you want to leave the interview with? I'm gonna I'm gonna use the advice I I give to everyone. It's not advice. It's a it's a it's more of a prayer or a wish, which is that in this work and in this world, um, I hope that you all will be gentle with yourselves. So be gentle with yourselves. Thank you for that. And lastly, where can people find you? I have a website. So it's simply jillchrisman.com. And from there, you can find me. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being my guest. This was just the best. Oh, thank you. I could talk to you forever. I so enjoy your podcast. It's just amazing. I appreciate that. I feel like it's it's practically made just for me. So I am honored, honored, honored to be a guest on it on your show. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T. P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. 